tonight I think that I'm going to be more kind of uh, a little bit educational. Uh, let's get Hebrews chapter 1. Praying that as usual that he will transform this place into an altar. So that burdens can be lifted, things can be given to him. But in Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 3, he says, and I'm reading from the message translation. Going through a long line of prophets, God has been addressing our ancestors in different ways for centuries. But recently he spoke to us directly through his son. And by his son, God created the world in the beginning and it will all belong to the son at the end. The sun perfectly mirrors God and is stamped with God's nature. He holds everything together by what he says. Powerful words. All right. In chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. It says, For whatsoever God says to us is full of living power. It is sharper than the sharpest dagger cutting swift and deep into our innermost thoughts and desires with all their parts, exposing us for what we really are. He knows about everyone everywhere. Everything about us is bare and wide open to the all-seeing eyes of our living God. Nothing can be hidden from him to whom we must explain all that we have done. A lot of times we, I don't think we realize that nothing can be hidden from him. He peers through our secrets, our innermost thoughts. He knows the the intent of our heart even before we do it or speak it. He already knows. And so from that, chapter 1 and chapter 4, I want to talk about the power of God's word. So we're going to walk through the 19th Psalm. It's a psalm that David wrote in honor of of God's word and I won't even get to touch it but Psalm 119 is a psalm that is also dedicated to the word in fact every eight verses is dedicated to a Hebrew Aleph Bet so every eight verses starting with verse 1 through 8 and then 9 through 16 and so forth each one of those covers a Hebrew alphabet, and each one deals with the meaning of that particular alphabet letter in the Hebrew language. So that that 119 psalm is very much alive. Uh, so uh, that's a good psalm to read when you want to find out about his word. And one thing that it starts out in the beginning that it says that it's good that a young or that a young man or young woman takes up that yoke in their youth honoring God's word but we're going to read through Psalms 19 and I'm reading for the NIV on this one it says the heavens declare the glory of God the skies proclaim the work of his hands day after day they pour forth speech night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, it has pitched a tent for the sun. Or in the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion. Like a champion rejoicing to run his course, it rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other nothing is hidden from its heat then he goes straight into the word the law of the lord is perfect reviving the soul the statutes of the lord are trustworthy making wise the simple the precepts of the lord are right giving joy to the heart the commandments of the lord are radiant giving light to the eyes the fear of the lord is pure enduring forever the ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold, and they are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. 
By them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Then he switches it to himself. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults, and keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of, tra- of the great transgression. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock or my strength and my redeemer. Now the thing about this psalm is we love to quote, ver- uh, quote verses 1 and 2, and we love to quote verse 14. But we're going to uh, get in between the lines and see what the word and the power of the word can do for you in your life. It has great power. And I I think my prayer for this one is, and I, I think that this is going to be more educational for us, is that we will develop a, a, a newfound and greater appreciation for his word. And realize that it's more than just on a page, but when you start to actuate it in your life and study it and to honor it, it becomes very much alive in your life and it works before you behind the scenes. And it is the reward of our faith when we trust in it. He deals with the heavens first and we'll just run through through this real quick. The heavens are telling the glory of God. They are the marvelous display of his craftsmanship. By heavens, this word has a dual nature and I believe that it deals with uh, the first and the second heaven, not so much the third heaven, because everything is done according to his will in the third heaven. But the stellar heaven and our atmospheric heaven are showing forth God's praise. They don't speak of themselves, but rather they testify of something much greater than themselves. We can learn from God's creation to glorify God. I was talking to somebody and uh, we were talking about uh, how the trees, the birds, and everything, that the creation gives him glory. But the two things in life that he, in creation that he gave free will to it are the two things that failed him, the angelic host and mankind. Everything else does not have a free will, but to man and to the angelic host, he gave a free will. And with that free will, kind of went straight against God's word, against his will, against his sovereignty, against his holiness. And I don't know what that is about the free will, but uh, I do thank God that we were able to turn that free will around and turn back to him. But they speak of Elohim, the creator. They don't speak of him as a judge. The word that David uses for the creation, giving glory to God, is Elohim, him as creator. He's the self-sufficient almighty one. He doesn't deal with him as a judge or as a redeemer, but as creator, he created everything and said, it is good. If we read through Genesis chapters one and two, every time he created something, he said, it is good. It it was not corrupted. It was not tainted. It was found in Lucifer later. And in Adam, it was found later. And then in the creation, because of Adam's sin, that also has a tendency to turn against the will of God. But with man, he said it was very good. And as the creator of all good things, the heavens testify of his glory and his splendors. He says that the heavens declare. This word declare means to score or to mark as a tally or a record. It is to inscribe or to enumerate or to recount intensively or to tell out. It is to verbally and outwardly proclaim. But you might say that the heavens don't have a verbal voice, but yet they scream loud. They scream volumes of how powerful God's word is because he didn't just think stuff into existence. He spoke it into existence. There is power in his word. Then he says the firmament, which is the visible arch of the sky. I'm going to make a couple of references to the arch of the sky. Uh, Many of us can see this from some of the uh, zoomed out pictures of the earth how the earth is rounded and you can see the light of the sun kind of arching over from one end to the other. When God promised that he would never destroy the earth by water again, he put a rainbow and he made an arch. The kids sing a song that his banner over me is love. He put an arch over us. The arch of the sky, it shows forth or announces by mouth Uh, to one that is present it means to expose 
or to predict, to explain or to praise. And the word handiwork actually means action. It means a transaction or activity. So the heavens show and expose that God is very active. This is very important because sometimes in our tests and in our trials and in our daily walk with God, sometimes we don't think that God is active. But if you look out in the universe, you'll see that God is always active. In fact, nothing is standing still in his creation. They showed on today the news. You would have thought that we were in, in a, a torrent, having torrential rains. The news flash, you know, they get so excited with the little least bit of rain or wind and they said oh palmdale and lancaster the high desert these winds and they showed the palm tree it was it was barely blowing it was a strong breeze off and on all day but when they actually shot it you would say oh you know it's, it's no big deal but that let that could let you see even though you could not see the wind that god is active the wind is active and he actually the wind is a is a the same word as spirit ruach the, the spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. And in one scripture says that the waves is God stirring up the sea as if he puts his, his finger in it and just stirs it up. He puts motion into everything that he created. So he says in verse number two, day and night, they keep on telling about God. So the heavens have not taken a break since their creation. They have never taken a break from giving God glory since they were created. He says day and night nonstop. He created the light and uh, of both the day and the night. He says in Genesis chapter one, he says he created them to rule. One rules in the day and one rules in the night. Okay, whatever God word produces, he produces that thing to rule. Lucifer has authority from God to rule that's why he calls him the God of this world and the prince and the power of this air when he creates things he creates them to rule when he created Adam he created him to rule he said you have dominion over everything that I created you can name it what you want it's up to you you have that rule so even though the Bible says that the heavens declare and they, they shout out his praises, they don't need a boisterous noise to solidify their proclamation. They accomplish their purpose in silence. Sometimes you don't have to say much. People know the difference. But he says here that the message, even though it's silent, it reaches the entire globe. And although the nations were separated by language, the heavens speak a global language, which is easily understood by all. And their voice, the Bible says, is heard. The voice and the testimony of the heavens is heard. This is why many people, they worship the sun God. They worship the moon God. They want to attach a deity to it because they know that something powerful must have created this part of the universe. They get it wrong sometimes. But... Silence is very uh, a very important part. In fact, the the word Selah is mentioned. I believe they said five hundred and something odd times in the Psalms, and it's a musical term in the Psalms since the Psalms are song uh, lyrics, uh, poetry to lyrics and music. He puts Selah as a rest. It's what we call a rest note, but a rest note is just as powerful in music. As somebody ripping 30 second notes, you, you just don't have a song nonstop, you know, but you, you give silence and you give pause. And it is those silent moments that can speak very loudly. This is why we said sometimes at the outset of our retreats, don't when when we quiet down, don't let that scare you. Uh, a lot of people in religion get scared in Christendom when there's silence. We, we think that we have to fill the moment with something. But sometimes God wants us to be still and be quiet because his voice, we always say that his voice is small. So if his voice is small and still, then that means we ought to be smaller and stiller than his voice in order to hear him. 
In order for him to have the preeminence, we must decrease and he must increase. But if he's silent and he's and he's he's whispering and he he gives subtle innuendos to you, then you need to be a little bit more quiet. Sometimes we're too loud. Sometimes we t- it's good to praise and it's good to to scream and shout. But sometimes it, you need to sit still and let God speak to you. I like riding in the car with nothing on sometimes. And, and I just I just I just listen to, to God. Sometimes I just quote his word. Sometimes I'm praying to him. I, I let him speak to me. I let him heal me in those moments when I'm by myself. So he deals with the sun. He says of the sun that within the heavens, he set the sun in its place and the heavens serving as a tabernacle, a tent. Now, when you go to tabernacle, tabernacle speaks of momentary dwelling. It is not something permanent. It is not something that is stationary. When God told them to make him a tabernacle in the wilderness, he made it to where they could break it down and move. So wherever there is a tabernacle, there is movement. There is wandering. There's there's going from place to place. So the sun has a tabernacle in the heavens. That means that the sun does not stand still. The sun has motion and the creation has motion. All right. It moves forward or so it seems. It is actually the planets which orbit the sun. But in the grand scheme of things, it seems like the sun orbits the earth. So we must first draw nigh to God. And in drawing nigh to him, the Bible says of Jesus Christ, he is the same yesterday, today and forevermore. So he is like the sun and everything revolves around him. And in our movement, it seems as if he's getting closer, but it's because we've drawn nigh by faith. And by us drawing nigh by faith, his illumination draws closer to us. So it moves with purpose. He gives us two examples of how the sun moves. Number one, it's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and on his way to a wedding. This means that he is on his way. To claim that which he vowed to become one with. When a groom comes out of that chamber in preparation for the wedding. He is getting ready to become one with the woman he promised by the ring that he would marry. So when God is on the move, it's he's on the move to become one with that which he created. Whenever God is moving in your life, he's trying to join to you. He's not trying to push us away, but he's trying to join himself to us. And he does everything in his power, the groom does, to make sure that all goes well and to ensure the happiness of all that are in attendance. And then he says that the son is also like a strong man rejoicing to run the race. This strong man actually means powerful warrior or a champion. It's a valiant man. But notice that this runner doesn't rejoice after the race. The son is eager before he even starts the race. He's eager to light the world. The son is eager to give warmth to some place in the earth, to give illumination to somebody. All day long, it's circling or the the, the universe is circling around the sun in order to give illumination. The rejoicing starts before the race because a strong man is confident in his strength. The sun doesn't wonder if it has the power to light the day. The moon doesn't second guess itself. It positions itself in the right way in order to give illumination so that you and I can see and give us time. Time that cannot be regained. So we must make use of it wisely. So he knows his strength. This is why I think it's in Hebrews uh, 12, which I'll probably deal with tomorrow. Christ endured the cross and despised the shame because he knew what waited at the finish line. He was confident in what he could do. The race is a well-trodden road. This is a new course. There is nothing new. I'm sorry. This is no new course. There is nothing new under the sun. The sun has been to and affected every part of the world. 
at the beginning of a day, we see this arch. The word starts. He exits his tabernacle. At the end of the day, he sets back in his tabernacle. But on the other side of the globe, as he's setting over here, he's coming out of his tent over there. So whenever you wake up in the morning, the word of God will meet you. And by the time you get to the end of the day, he'll meet you again. I love to watch the sunset. We used to always drive out uh, up Pacific Coast Highway and watch the sunset. And the sun moves so, it seemed like it moves so slow that you can't really see it. But you can see the motion of the sun when it's going down. And if you wake up early enough, sometimes you can see it rise. You can actually see the movement of it. And actually when it's set, it looks like it's moving actually at a faster pace than it does at noonday. That's because God is working uh, when the sun comes up, when the sun goes down. His word will meet you in the morning. It'll meet you in the evening. And it works all around the clock. All right. So now what is laid out in the 19th Psalm? I like this about David here. Because he uses the word Elohim when he says the, the heavens declare the glory of God. He uses Elohim as God. But the name that speaks, that he speaks the seven other times, he uses Jehovah, which is God's covenant name. So when he switches from the creation to the covenant, God changes his name. He's not just the Lord that created you. But now he's the Lord that not only created you, but enters into covenant with you. So this is when he starts to talk about the word. To God, the creation is also the God of personal revelation to his people. It wasn't enough for the heavens to declare God's glory. We need his word to reveal to us what the universe already declares in silence. With revelation comes the enabling power to cross over from praise to worship. The Bible says, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. But he says that he's seeking true worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth. That can only happen when you enter into covenant relationship with him. So in order for David to get from creation to the word, he has to go from a place of praise to worship. We can't study God's word just from a level of praise. We have to enter into a whole nother realm when we get into God's word, when we implement it, when we study it, when we hear it, when, when we speak it. We have to enter and be in a relationship whereby worship is in play. So he uses here, he calls the word six different names. And within those six different names, he mentions nine attributes to the word. And from those nine attributes, he he mentions nine uh, ministries that the word will do for you in verses. I believe it's uh, seven through nine or so. OK, so the word is called the law of the word. Number two, the testimony of the Lord. Number three, the statutes of the Lord. And I'm going to go through these again. Number four, the commandments of the Lord. Number five, he calls it the fear of the Lord. Number six, he calls it the judgments of the Lord. And the attributes that the word uh, perform uh, is that, number one, they're perfect. His word is sure. His word is right. His word is pure. His word is clean. His word is true. His word is righteous. His word is desirable. And his word is sweet. And the nine ministries or the attributes or, or I would say the rewards of his word. And this is where it comes into play for you. The power of it. It converts or revives the soul. Number two, it makes the simple wise. Number three, it causes the heart to rejoice. Number four, it enlightens and gives revelation to the eyes or the mind. Number five, it is enduring forever. Number six, it enriches like gold. Number seven, it satisfies like, like honey. Numbers, where was I? Eight, it warns against sin. And number nine, it rewards the obedient. All right, so let's get into this. The first one he says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. 
The law to the Jewish people was the Torah and referred to the scroll that was given to them by Moses. But in this instant, the word refers to all of God's revelation collectively. It comes from a word which means a word which means to shoot an arrow. It is used in the sense of a teacher who aims to hit the target and achieve specific goals in the lives of the students. So being perfect, there is nothing that needs to be added to or subtracted from to make it more efficient. So there is no error in it. It is spotless and harmless as being absolutely well-meaning and altogether directed towards the well-being of man. When God sent forth his word, he sent, he sent it with a purpose in order for your well-being, for your flourishment and your nourishment. He wanted you to be well. He didn't send you to he didn't send it to curse you. Now there's a word of cursing, but we don't want to fall under that category. The word that he in fact he says, I know the plans that and he says it almost like, you know, we were telling him what his plan for us was. <laughs> but he turns around and says, I know my plan for you. Don't you tell me what my plan for you is. And it is to do good and not evil. To bless you and not to curse you. So the, the effect here is that it converts or revives the soul. It imparts newness of life. The word of the Lord not only has life, but it imparts life and sustains life. It brings us back to ourselves, back to our God, and back to our duty. I think it's in Titus. Uh, he says that he saved us by regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. That word renewing of the Holy Ghost goes back to the time where many believe that Adam had the Holy Ghost. Probably not in the form that we have it because dispensations had changed. But he had that communication and covenant with God that God communed and talked to him every day. So the word now can bring newness of life back to the creature. The conversion is dependent upon the faith and the belief of the hearer. Without faith, it will have no conversion effect. So it restores from disorder and decay, from sorrow and affliction, and from death, and from sin and shame. This is what the word will do for us. Whether you find your life in disorder, decay, sorrow, or affliction, death, sin, shame, or any other negativity that you can place on your life, the word comes to counteract that. And when it's when he speaks it, it has the power to convert the soul. Next, he says that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The word testimony means the inspired word and is a witness of what God has said and done and how those who heard responded. The testimony tells us everything that we need to know, what God does, what man does, how God interacted with man, how man failed God, how man praises God, how God is merciful to man, how God punishes man. All of this is written down for us to study and to see where we fall in line with God. So he says that the testimony is sure. His witness is trustworthy and credible. The first thing that people do on a witness stand in a, in a trial is they try to question your trustworthiness. They go way back into your history. You know, but when you were this age, you were on drugs. And, and excuse me, were you ever admitted into a mental hospital? And, and all of this stuff will come out on the stand so they can discredit your word so you won't be noted as a credible witness. So they, they can wipe you off the stand. But when God is brought to the stand, there's nothing that we could bring against him that will cause him to be discredited. Everything that he says is trustworthy. It's not tainted. He has no ulterior motive in reporting it. He simply states to us the facts, whether it's about himself, whether it's about you. And when God tells you something about yourself, believe it. Believe what he says about you. And I found out that, that a lot of times you're not going to like what he says about you. But, but you got to believe him anyway. 
Because if you believe them, then it'll have the power to convert your soul and then make you wise. But if you don't believe it, you won't be wise and your soul won't be converted. So it says he makes simple the wise. Simple here doesn't mean mentally challenged. But it is those who possess the nature to be easily persuaded. Those that are humbly simple, sensible of their own folly and willing to be taught. These are the people that can be made wise by the word of God. That means arrogance has to go out the door. This is why he compares his children to sheep, because sheep are the, by nature the dumbest animals. They'll follow anybody. But it's that that nature to be easily led that will cause them to to follow the right God. And once you he said, once you hear my voice, even though you're a dumb sheep, after you hear the word that I speak to you, you won't follow nobody else. So it's not always a negative thing to be called simple. In fact, Paul calls the gospel the gospel of simplicity. It is a simple gospel. It is us who've made it, you know, <laughs> complex and difficult to understand. But we've done it to, so that we can rely on others. When God says, I didn't do this in the corner. Anybody could come to me and ask the wisdom and I'll freely give it to them. And this wisdom will make you wise to salvation. It is insight into, into divine things and foresight of things to come. Then he goes on and says that the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. This word precept or in the King James, it says statutes. It means charges giving on particular occasion. These are circumstantial guidelines that God gives for certain areas, for certain times, for specific people, for at specific times. He knows how to lead and guide you. At a particular time in your life. And we see this all throughout the children of Israel's wandering through the wilderness. That God always gave them a word of direction. A word of correction in order to get them from point A to B. Because as far as they knew they, they were just out there to die in the wilderness. But he gave them a word to sustain them. So these are God's detailed instructions concerning the practical matters of everyday life. Now, this is where we get to the nitty gritty, because now his word is not just black and white on the page. It's not just something I read or something I quote or something I memorize to enter into the, to the Bible competition to see who can memorize the most scriptures. But now it has to become a part of me and it has to lead and guide me in the darkest hours. And I, I've got to use it as a compass. And if I don't know it, then I'll be lost. I don't care what anybody says to you. If you need the word. There's safety in the multitude of counselors, but the word of God is most important and it's foremost and should be at the top of your list in your life. He says they are right, having proceeded from the upright, absolute goodwill of God. They make straight, smooth, right and upright, opposed to crookedness in mind of conduct, showing what the man should be both within and and without this is the character of God's word it will tell you what you should be now he comes to you and tells you who you are and remember that his testimony is true so when he says something about you that it's true then once it's true then you got to go on and he gives you instruction on what you should be now the problem is many of us number one don't don't believe him when he says Lord that ain't me I'm not this I'm not that you know, I, I'm I'm not angry. I don't I don't hate that person, but you might get a little joy if they were to drop dead. <laughs> Just a little bit. <laughs> you you got to be honest with yourself. And if we do it, he says the heart rejoices when it perceives that it has been guided along the right path. Jeremiah 15 and 16 says, "Your words are what sustain me." They are food to my hungry soul. They bring joy to my sorrowing heart and delight me. How proud I am to bear your name, O Lord. So then David goes on and says that the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. 
This word commandment means to command or give orders. It, it's you're ordained from God to do certain things. What God has ordered man to do or not to do. What he has commanded and what he has prohibited. The idea here is not so much that the thing is right in itself as that it is appointed or ordered by God. That it is what he requires. And this is where you get into personal uh, guidance from God where you say, well, so-and-so did this or so-and-so said it's okay to do this or go there or do that or be involved with this or that. But when God directs you and says, this is not for you, that's pure. And if you follow it, you're, he'll open up your understanding. The word pure means clear. It means to cleanse or to purify. If we're going to be cleansed, we have to obey his order. It means that it's free from all stain or imperfection or any corrupt tendency. His word doesn't have a corrupt tendency to it. And it enlightens the eyes. That is, it gives us light and knowledge. The eyes are mentioned as it is by them that we see where to go. Without the eyes, we don't see where to go. The blind have to find their way with something that is able to touch and reach out. But he gives us eyes in order to see. And spiritual eyes is what David is talking about here. He'll open your eyes up to life. Elisha was ready to do battle. And Elisha said, man, we can't go up against all these people. And he said, what are you fearing? We're going to win this battle. And the young man said, how are we going to win this battle with all these folks against us? And he prayed to the Lord, open his eyes. And when he opened his eyes, he saw the army of the Lord surrounded around the mountaintop. So when you could get a God perspective, see, the prophet had connection with God. He had a connection with God that the young man didn't have because the young man was too fascinated with the prophet in order to see God. He wanted to be like his mentor when he could have had the same connection as his mentor. But the prophet had a direct line to God. Why he says mark the perfect man which is Christ the reference here is undoubtedly to the mind or soul as being enlightened by the truth of God we are made by these commandments to see what is right and proper to understand what we should do the fear of the Lord is pure enduring forever the fear of the Lord is synonymous with the word here and it's interesting that David uses the term the fear because he's used law, commandments, precept, judgments. But here in number five, he uses the fear of the Lord, which would you really wouldn't term the word as the fear of the Lord. Oh, its purpose is to put fear into the human heart. It is the instruction afforded by God for fearing him. So it, it is not so much a, a standing in terror of the Lord. But it is a respect for his word because his word teaches you to reverence him. The word pure here means requiring holy separation from all uncleanliness. It is pure. It is clean in and of itself and has the power to clean anything that it comes into contact with. When um, God gave them the order of how to cr create the anointing oil to dedicate and to anoint stuff in his house in the tabernacle of the Old Testament. That oil could only be made by one person. And that person's name meant that he lived in God's presence. So you couldn't manufacture it. He said this oil couldn't touch just any any old normal flesh. He said, but wherever you use this oil, where I, where I command you to put it, whatever that oil touches is going to be made holy unto me. So this is what the power of God's word will do. Whatever it touches and is received by faith, it will cleanse and purify. John 15 and 3 says, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. See, sometimes we think we pure, we were clean because we didn't do A, B, C, D, and, and F, and X, Y, and Z. But that's not the thing. That, the, the only reason we're cleansed is because his word cleansed us. 
And because his word cleanses, we don't do X, Y, and Z, or we do A, B, and C. It's because his word cleansed us. Sometimes we get things in the wrong order. It endures forever. Nothing about it is temporary, nor is it subject to decay. The traditional sense of fear will cause us to flee, shriek back, or take flight. But this fear builds up. Worldly fear kills, but godly fear establishes us forever. That which is pure will stand against the test of the most destructive forces. In fact, those forces will actually beautify the object even more. The judgments of the Lord are true, righteous altogether. He says, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. So the word judgments here means verdicts. God's evaluations of men and circumstances are true and entirely correct. So when God dishes out a verdict in our lives, we ought to say, Amen. Amen. <laughs> and one of the most corrupt times in the ministry of the Old Testament, Eli. The Bible says about his eyes that they were dim. That's because there was no word. See, David says that the word enlightens the eyes. But when there's no word, there's no enlightenment. So what happens in the spirit will always surface itself in the natural. So Eli became blind. He became physically blind because he was spiritually blind. But his blindness was willful because he turned his eye on what his sons were doing. And what his sons were doing, we talk about sleeping with the women, but like I said before, they were taking people's sacrifices. And when you manipulate people's sacrifice and pull at their heartstrings and that which belongs to God, you're in trouble. But because of that, God raised up another prophet named Samuel. And Samuel came on the scene and Samuel served in the temple. And God spoke to Samuel one night, called out to him by name. And Samuel thought that it was Eli calling him. He came and said, yeah, Lord, I'm here. You know, what do you want? He said, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. The Lord did it again. Samuel, he went back to Eli again. What do you want? I know I heard you call me. He said, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. Came back again. Man, I know you just called me. Eli said, now, I'm out of communication with God right now, but I perceive that God is talking to you. Now, when he talks to you next time, answer him this way. So here you have a man who is God has rejected now. Teaching another man how to respond to God. That is the power of God. He will take somebody that he has rejected to teach you how to respond to him. This is why with relationships in our lives, we, we, we ought to always look for, for areas where we could gain wisdom from God and get direction from God. Because he could use the, the dirtiest of people to teach us something about himself. It teaches us how to respond to him. And we think we're responding to the other person, but no, we're responding to God. The other person is a bystander now. So God tells Samuel that I'm going to do A, B, and C to Eli. And he says, I pray that you tell me what God said to you. He says, I don't want to tell you because it's about you. How would you feel you can't say, man, you got a word for me? Oh, man. The Lord said he'd take his anointing from you. But he had enough sense to receive the verdict of God. Whatever God says is just. I'm not so big-headed that I can't receive the judgment that I deserve. So David says that his judgments, they're right. All together, there's nothing tainted in them. He knows all things completely at the same time. And these judgments are to be desired. And desire of these must surpass every other desire. So I ask the question. What have been your strongest desires in life? Has it been for a job, spouse, a house, a car? And has that desire 
overridden your desire for his word. Because David says here that, that these things are to be more desired than gold. At that time, gold was the most expensive commodity. And we're in a day now where gold is over $1,000 an ounce. It may have dropped back down to nine something. But people are shifting their money because money loses value and they're buying gold. Because there's value in gold. When recessions hit and inflation hits, then gold is a commodity that could be traded and sold worldwide. You are to desire God's word more than that so that if you are left to nothing, that will be the thing that will sustain you. People are buying gold because they want to be sustained if this economy goes sour worldwide. They want to be able to have something to buy and trade with. But he says to, about God's word, his word should be desired more than gold. Not just regular gold, but fine gold. The choice is gold. Do you value the word much more than fine gold? This is a question we all have to answer. Where we stand tonight, think of how you've studied God's word, how you read it. Do you know more about Oprah than you know about God? These are serious questions because sometimes we'll have to answer that, man, you know what? I kind of know a little bit more about the entertainment industry right now. We've allowed that to supersede God's word. And then we wonder why our soul isn't converted, why we have no insight to God's doings. Why we're full of pride because we're not easily led. Why our past seems so crooked is because we're not on the path that he gave us. We're studying somebody else when we should be studying him. So no matter how much anyone offers you, don't, don't sell the truth. The Bible says buy the truth and sell it not. Hold on to it for dear life because your life depends on it. So David introduces a promise to those who keep his word. He says that there's great reward to them to keep it. Now he doesn't specify the award because they are many. As many in fact as there are ordinance. So in order for you to know what rewards you get. The great rewards for obeying God's word. You got to read the word and then see what promises are attached to that word. Alright so now he gives us accountability. Notice that through this psalm, there is no, there is no Selah. When he switches from creation to the word and then from his word to our accountability, everything flows together from beginning to end. Creation tells us about God, then God reveals himself to us and expects us to do what the creation does, and that is glorify his name. And this is where the accountability come in. After all this word, he asks a question. But how can I ever know the sins, what sins are lurking in my heart? He gives all this glory to the word and what the word is called and what the word uh, will do and what it can transform you into. Then he says, but who can know the error of his way? Why would he ask that after giving such homage and, and rejoicing to the word of God? Because the word of God should tell you about the error of your way. Now we know a lot about other people's errors. How do you know the error of your way? <laughs> That's the ones we don't like to admit. And this is when the New Testament says, don't lie to one another. <laughs> Come on, don't do that. He said, cleanse me from these hidden faults and keep me from deliberate wrongs. Help me to stop doing them. Only then can I be free of guilt and innocent of some great crime he says the great transgression now we know in um i believe it's in my notes i'll get to it but jeremiah says the heart is the most deceitful thing there is and desperately wicked and no one can really know how bad it is so david asks who can know the error of his way so without submitting to god's word we have no way of having our sins purged and enjoying fellowship with a holy God. He says, cleanse me of my hidden faults. These are sins that he may have forgotten he committed. These may be sins of ignorance. These may be sins that were rooted in the heart 
and not yet put into action. Because remember that the Pharisees were a people of the law. The law says A, B, C, D. That's how you do it. And Jesus would say, now a new commandment I give you. You heard that you shouldn't cover your neighbor's wife. But I say unto you that any man that looks on a woman to lust after her in his heart has already committed adultery. So, so God has a way of magnifying the meaning of his word now so we don't get caught up in the antics of stuff because we're real good with antics. We, we know how to summarize God's word, but God is looking for detail. He's a God of detail. And he's just not going for any old thing. Because remember, the, the, the second scripture I read, the word of God is sharper than into any two-edged sword. He pierced through even the dividing of soul and spirit. Something that we can't even see. Two things that we can't see. Not only does he see it, but he knows how to divide it and separate it. And can even separate the bone from the marrow. So he knows how to peer through some stuff. The only way to be cleansed from these is by the word which goes from end to end. The law in the Old Testament made provisions for sins of ignorance, but not for open defiance or rebellion. And this is important because if any of us have ever slipped and fell away from God and we found our footing and God showed us grace and mercy, we really, we really should rejoice. Because if you were to read uh, Hebrews 6 verses 4 through 6, well, I'll read it. He says, there's no use trying to bring you back to the Lord again if you have once understood the good news and tasted for yourself the good things of heaven and shared in the Holy Spirit and know how good the word of God is and felt the mighty powers of the, word to, of the world to come and then have turned against God you cannot bring yourselves to repent again if you have nailed the Son of God to the cross again by rejecting him, holding them, holding him up to the mocking and public shame. This is why we don't we shouldn't want to play with sin to see what we could get away with. Because we don't he, he may let somebody get by with it three times. It may be just one time for you. I don't know. That's why I say if, if for any of us that have sinned against him willfully, not not hidden sins that we didn't know about, that we just didn't study God's word. I didn't know that was a sin. You knew it was wrong and did it. If God showed you mercy that you really should thank him. Because in the Old Testament and even the new, he, there, there, he said there remains no more sacrifice for you because you've crucified him all over again after knowing what he went through. You knew the agony that he suffered. You know how he plucked his beard and spit in his face and cut his back open. You knew what they did to him. And, and you, re, you thanked him and received him for that sacrifice. And then you turned around and did the same thing that they did to him when you willfully sinned. Now, this is stuff you, that you wish you knew before you made that mistake on purpose. Mistake on purpose. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiveness. So he says, I don't want to fall under the, the, the great transgression. Now, John 5, 1 John 5 and 16 says that there is a sin unto death. He said, but if you see a brother that hasn't sinned unto death, you ought to pray for him. Because there's still mercy and there's still grace for him. Some people God has given up on. Now, my prayer is that, Lord, would you show me that you've given up on them so I give up on them? Because if the word can't get to them, I can't get to them. Any place that the sun doesn't shine, that's a place that's doomed for death. You need the heat and the light of the sun to survive. So deliberate sins, presumptuous that which is this word presumptuous means that it's boiling, swelling, it's inflated. Then it's proud and arrogant with the accessory notion 
of shameless wickedness of impiety. The prevailing thought is that of pride and the reference is particularly to sins which proceed from self-confidence from reliance on one's own strength. The word does not mean open sins or flagrant sins so much as those which spring from self-reliance or pride. So when he's talking about presumptuous sins, he's just not talking about sins that, you know, you just did. But your your heart it is has been elevated above God's throne. You say, I'm big and bad enough to defy you, God, and I'm going to do it. That's a dangerous place to be. That is the place where Lucifer has entered into your heart because that is his mark. So the prayer is substantially that he might have a proper distrust of himself and might not be left by an improper reliance on his own power to the commission of sin. So James says in 1 and 22, he says, and remember, it is a message to obey not just to listen to. So don't fool yourselves, for if a person just listens and doesn't obey, he is like a man looking at his face in a mirror. As soon as he walks away, he can't see himself anymore or remember what he looks like. But if anyone keeps looking steadily into God's law for, for free men, he will not only remember it, but he will do what it says, and God will greatly bless him in everything that he does. So when we look at ourselves in the word of God. The, the word of God is meant to be a mirror. We think it's a camera. We think it's a camera that we can shoot at this individual over here. And see them on, on the LED screen. And say uh huh. But, but it's not a camera. The word of God is a mirror. It reflects you. You, you got enough problems dealing with you that you don't have to worry about somebody else. Because <laughs> if it wasn't for the grace of God, there go I. The only way that you can do it is that you're going to have to see yourself for how God sees you. Psalm 139 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test my thoughts. Point out anything that you find in me that makes you sad. Not angry. But what makes God sad? Paul said, don't enrage the Holy Ghost. He didn't say that. He said, don't tick the Holy Ghost off. He didn't say that. He said, don't grieve the Holy Spirit whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Don't. You don't want to make God cry. So he says, point out anything you find in me that makes you sad and lead me along the path of everlasting. So the Bible is, is compared to a two-edged sword we read earlier. Like the sun rising and setting on the two supports of the earth's arch, so the word sets on two points which support the arch of God's greatness. Now, the, the teaching that a two-edged sword, it cuts in and it cuts coming out, that is not the meaning of a two-edged sword. Because a one-edged knife will cut going in and cut going out. Just cut your steak. It'll cut going forward and it'll cut coming back. So the real meaning of the two-edged sword is that there's two sides to the word of God. There's the favorable side. And there's the unfavorable side. The question is, which side are you going to land on? It, it's really up to you. You can land on whichever side you want. Joshua said, I, I set before you this day life and death. He said, choose what you want. I'm not going to try to tell you what to choose. You, you know, I think you have an understanding what life is, and I think you have an understanding what death is. He said, so you choose. So like that arch, there's two sides to it. By the end of the day at the sunset, which side of the word will you be on? Because the word's going to be there. Remember now, the creation has not ceased from the day it was created to give God glory. It has never taken a day off. It doesn't get a holiday. 24-7 for however 
many millions, billions, thousands, whatever the how old the creation is, it has always praised God. Now it's our duty to do the same. So he says, from the rising of the sun to the going down of the same, the Lord's name is to be praised. When the sun comes out of his tabernacle and when he goes back in, there you should be in his word, searching yourself, searching his word to see where you line up. 